Today, I have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down with Dove Foreman, a student of mine of Nitzavim, but even more importantly, um, an international bestseller for his book that he wrote with his great-grandmother, Lily Herbert, telling her story going through Auschwitz and the entire Holocaust, as well as someone who has 2 million TikTok followers and not spreading your typical TikTok content, but rather spreading information about the Holocaust awareness, anti-Semitism, anti-Israel sentiments. Even at such a young age of 16, 17, and 18, he is really changing the perception of the world. So excited for you guys to meet Doe Foreman. Israel is so much more than Krav Maga or Falafel. And Jewish continuity has far greater meaning than watching Fiddler on the Roof with your kids. Welcome to the Thrive Study Broadcast, the show where we will talk about modern Israel, Jewish values, and everything in between. I'm your host, Adi Isaacs, director of Thrive Study Abroad. For the last 15 years, I've seen how a semester or more in Israel will change a student forever. In this podcast, incredible students and people just like them share how Israel and Jewish values not only inspire them, but empower them to make an impact. Yala, Achi, and welcome to the show. Welcome, Dove. Thank you so much for coming. You know, it's really exciting to have uh, a student, an Itzavim student, and also uh, a really, really inspirational individual join. So thank you for taking time today and coming. Thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast and also to be a student of yours. Ah, okay, great, great. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, a little bit about yourself, where you're from. Um, you know, people can't necessarily see you, so how old you are and uh, what you're doing this year. My name is Dov Foreman. I'm 19 years old. So I'm currently studying in Yeshivat Hakotel for the year. Um, I'm originally from London, grew up in an Orthodox Zionist family, one of three children, the youngest. And I think I always grew up with a strong Jewish identity, a strong identity for Israel, and a strong identity to, as I do now, to share stories of the Holocaust and Judaism on a, on a, on a wide scale. And I think as a student of Nitzavim, um, I'm trying to also grow that to when I go to secular college next year to study history at University College London um, to help engage both secular Jews, but also Jewish people and non-Jewish people who maybe don't believe in, in the state of Israel, but also who don't understand what anti-Semitism means, what anti-Jewish racism means. Um, and that's kind of a bit about me. My great-grandmother's a Holocaust survivor. I grew up knowing her story um, from a very young age. My great-grandmother would come to our schools, educate about the Holocaust. What, a, what age? That's perfect. You, you just said like a tremendous amount <laughs> that we could definitely have to unpack. So your grandmother is a Holocaust survivor, and she started coming to your school at, at what age? I think I remember as young as seven years old hearing my great-grandmother talk. Obviously, this was a cover story, a story which was appropriate for younger children. But I think it was really during COVID when I really started to understand what the Holocaust meant and her full story. But again, from about seven years old, I really remember being taught about the Holocaust from my great-grandmother. She would come into our school and educate not only me, but hundreds of, of other young children in both Jewish and non-Jewish schools across the country. Hmm. And where, the, so where are you from again? London. London. Green. So you're, so gold is green. So your grandmother used to come. Was the Holocaust something that was spoken about in your, in your family a lot? You know, I know there's some people that speak about it. Some families do, some families don't. So I think, in and amongst the family, it was less spoken of, especially amongst my mum and grandmother's generation. Um, my great-grandmother tried to protect her children. She didn't talk about it at home. Of course, they did know. They, they knew that their, great, that their mother was a Holocaust survivor. They saw the tattoo on her left arm, A10572, a permanent reminder 
of the Nazis' crimes against humanity, and, and you can't run away from that. The, the trauma and the tragedy stays with you forever. And I think that trauma, many historians and many psychologists speak about, it actually passes down the family, generational trauma. I think a lot of people that I speak to, especially now I educate about the Holocaust, we'll get to that later, a lot of people that I speak to think that the Holocaust and its effects ended in 1945 with the liberation of the camps. That's not the case. The traumas have lived on for generations to the children of survivors, even grandchildren. I don't feel it, but I know other great-grandchildren that do feel those traumas in their families. So in and amongst the family, we spoke about it sometimes, but I think especially on Shabbat, my great-grandmother didn't want to speak about it. She, would, she always said that Shabbat is for happy times, not to talk about the sad times and, and, and terrible things. And really that was the majority of the time that I spent with my great-grandmother was, was centred and surrounded around Shabbat because she would stay with us or we would go to her and the whole family would be together. She's very much the queen of the family. She has 10 grandchildren, 36 great-grandchildren now. And I think, A, when we reflect on those numbers, we really reflect on what was lost in the Holocaust. Imagine if every single one of the 6 million who perished had 36 great-grandchildren. But she, as I said, she's very much the queen of the family. She has developed a loving bond with every single one of her grandchildren, children, great-grandchildren. And the majority of the time that we spent with her was with the whole family around Shabbat. And we didn't really talk about the Holocaust. Of course, we all knew. We heard her speaking in our schools and on radio and television. But in and amongst the family, we didn't speak about it that much. That was until I became more curious and would ask her more questions. And I realized that she was happy to answer them. So you started hearing your grandmother through your school, through your siblings. Again, you're the youngest, so you've heard through the siblings. You said your your grandmother also was on television. Like how how long ago radio? How long ago did this start that your grandmother was telling her story? So in the late 1980s, my great grandmother realized that in the UK she moved from Israel to the UK in 1967, and she lived there, not telling her story for about 20 years. And she realized that in the late 80s that there were no Holocaust survivors really talking about their stories. It wasn't spoken about that much. Of course, in schools, people learned about World War II and the Holocaust, but there weren't any first-hand eyewitnesses telling their stories. And she helped with a few other survivors to set up the Holocaust Survivor Center, which was a place where survivors could go and talk in and amongst each other. They had a house where there was constantly food and it was a very safe space for Holocaust survivors to talk amongst each other about their shared trauma. And they came together and they realized that they also have to go and talk about this on a, on a more national scale, on a wider scale to both Jews and non-Jews in our community, outside of our community. And what they realized was that people really did want to hear and did want to listen. They thought that people wouldn't want to listen, wouldn't care, but it was overwhelmingly, they realized people did and people had so many questions. Was there, did you realize what the impetus was that all of a sudden, it seems like a long time after the Holocaust passed, passed when, when your parents, you, know, you, you were already born. So what was the impetus that all of a sudden your grandmother and their friends decided that it's, it's time to start telling the story? I think they realized that they were getting older. Um, I think more books were also being written across the world about the Holocaust and more people were talking about it. Of course, there was the rise of anti-Semitism and, anti and, and Holocaust denial and distortion across the world too. So I think that kind of pushed them to tell these stories. On top of that, I think they realized that even then, my great-grandma says to us that she realized that she was going to not have that many years left. I think it's weird for me to think about that now when 40 years later she's still educating about a story. But at the time she thought that she really wouldn't have that many years to educate. Amazing. So we're, t we're talking a lot about your grandmother because uh, it really made a major impact on you. Um, and at what point in time did you think that, you know, let me hear a little bit more of the story. It all started during the COVID lockdown. In England, we went into to lockdown very early on in, in the COVID outbreak. And it was the first time in my life that I was separated for a prolonged period of time from my great-grandmother. As I said, she's very much the queen of the family. We're all very close to her. 
Um, every single great-grandchild has a personal relationship with her and it's very close. And this was for the first time that for three months I wasn't able to see my great-grandmother, wasn't able to interact with her. And I found it incredibly hard because she only lives a few roads away from us and she was 96 at the time and who knew what was going to happen in the COVID, COVID lockdowns. We were very worried about my great-grandmother. At the time she lived alone, she really is incredible. She, she was living alone at 96 years old and, and still going out every day before the COVID lockdown, educating, meeting different people, walking down the streets. When she walks down the streets, every single person knows her. Um, it really is quite incredible. And for the first time in my life, I felt disconnected from her. And it was incredibly hard. And then my great-grandmother decided that she wanted to move in with us because she was lonely during COVID. And she, she moved into our house and it was me, my brother, my sister, my parents and my great-grandmother. And we became incredibly close, much closer than ever before. Of course, I was always close with her. But when you live with someone every single day, you kind of realise how similar you are. But also, I think I realised for the first time how incredible my great-grandmother is really I internalized what she went through every single day I would ask her different questions about her story and she would give me different answers answers that I'd never heard before even that I'd never read before in books graphic details of the holocaust that she had never even shared before and she for the first time felt comfortable sharing them with her own family with her own great-grandson and so I think we formed this quite unique and special bond where my great-grandmother felt comfortable sharing with me things that she had never shared before about her testimony and where I also felt comfortable to ask her and press on questions which if I hadn't asked, these stories would be forgotten and, and unfortunately would probably never have been told. And during the COVID lockdown, I said to my great-grandmother, I've got to video this and I've got to record this and share it with the world. I think it started just from curiosity and developing a real, real relationship with your grandmother. And then from there, it was just like, I, I have to share this. Yes. And I think I often encourage other young people, not only young people, anyone with any family story, just to be curious. And I gave a TED Talk a few months ago and I spoke about the three ways we'll get here, obviously, um, into what I mean by this. But I speak about the three ways to get success on social media um, in terms of making other people listen to what you're saying. And the main thing is just to have curiosity, to firstly create curiosity from other people, but also to actually be curious about the subject yourself. And I had incredible amounts of curiosity from my great-grandmother's story. As I said, I knew her story, but not that much in depth. I'd heard her speaking with a cover story that she gave in schools, but never really about herself and never really about her own traumas and what she saw herself. So I began to become more curious, and I say to her, let's share this with the world, I've got to record this. And I also said to her, I want you to show me some more tangible things, some things that people can relate to. Do you have any artifacts, any photos? And she's rummaging around her cupboard, we went to her house, and she's rummaging, and in the back of her cupboard she finds a, an orange album. And she pulls out this album, and we're flicking through it, and we stumble across a banknote a banknote which was given to her, she explained to me at the time, by an American Jewish liberator who liberated her from the death march in April 1945. Mm. And on this banknote were written 10 words, 10 words of hope, the start to a new life, good luck and happiness. And the soldier, this Jewish American soldier, hadn't written his name. He wrote his position in the army, the assistant chaplain Schachter. And chaplain Schachter was the first chaplain in the whole of the US army to liberate a death camp, um, or any camp in fact. He liberated Buchenwald first. And my great-grandmother was on the death march. She was originally in Auschwitz, but she was taken to Leipzig in Germany for slave labor. So she was taken on the death march for five days. She was marching, and suddenly they see these American soldiers. And one of these American soldiers gives her a message of kindness, a message of hope. And she stood there and she told me, this was the first time that I had experienced any kindness, that I had experienced anyone even giving me a nice gesture since the beginning of the war. How old was your grandmother at this time? She was 21 at the time. And it really struck me that, A, I had never learned about the kindness of the liberators and the work that they actually did. 
Of course, we know so much about the story of the survivors and those who were murdered in the Holocaust. But I don't think we, we, we focus too much on the stories of the liberators. A, the trauma that they also went through and what they saw, but also the work that they did, the incredible work that so many liberators, especially the Americans and the British, did to bring these survivors back to reality. Just one small gesture, one kind gesture, 10 words of hope, the start to a new life, good luck and happiness. And that meant so much to my great-grandmother. After all, she kept this note for 77 years, um, locked away in the back of her cupboard in pristine condition. I mean, she could have used that German banknote to buy one bar of chocolate or to buy a dress, which she had none of after liberation, but she didn't. She kept it because of what that kind message meant to her. And I realized I have to share this with the world. And I didn't realize how much power it would go on to have. And I shared this with the world. So I posted it on Twitter saying my great-grandmother yesterday, a 96-year-old Holocaust survivor, showed me a German banknote she was given upon liberation, which has 10 words of hope on it. And within two hours, it turned into an international hunt for this mystery soldier. We had... Meaning it started, you, you had barely any following 60 on followers. To. And I thought, I can't make any difference. But I thought I still would post it. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this. Was there a fear to post it? I don't think there was so much a fear. I thought no one would care and that no one would listen. Um, I didn't really fear anti-Semitism because I didn't think that anyone would see it enough to get anti-Semitism. But I think an important lesson is that no matter how many followers you are, and you have and, and, and who you are, no matter what community you're from, you can make a difference with one click of a button. And I say this because within eight hours, we had eight million views on the tweet. And we had found the mystery soldier who liberated my great-grandmother. He unfortunately passed away a few years earlier but his family was still alive and we reconnected with them. And within two days, my great-grandmother and I had appeared on the 100 biggest news outlets in the world, including CNN, Good Morning America, The View, Good Morning Britain, BBC. Um, and we were going to share this story about the Holocaust. And it was the first time that I think the Holocaust had been shown in this light online. What do, what do you mean by that, shown in this light online? I think no one prior to COVID was talking about the Holocaust, especially on Twitter, but also in mainstream media. It was mainly done by survivors in schools and 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 in workshops across the world. I think my great-grandmother's always been incredibly creative. <laughs> There's a story when she once went to a train station and she puts up a poster saying, I'm a Holocaust survivor, the busiest train station in the UK. I'm a Holocaust survivor. I'm going to sit here for a few hours, ask me questions. She bought a couch. It was organized by, uh, by the Holocaust Educational Trust in the United Kingdom. And hundreds of people came and asked her questions. But I think my great-grandmother's always been that one person who always wants to innovate and always wants to get this story out more. And I, I feel that too. I've, I've also kind of gained this responsibility and, and, and I feel that same mission to her to consistently innovate the space because Holocaust education, unfortunately, seems in a lot of places across the world to have failed. Antisemitism is on the rise in an astronomical rate and Holocaust denial and distortion is, is prominent almost on all social media platforms. The difference to now and three years ago is that three years ago there was no one educating about the Holocaust online, on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram. There were a few museums posting things every day. The Auschwitz Museum does tremendous work on Twitter, posting a picture every single, I think, hour of a Holocaust survivor or someone who perished in Auschwitz. But there was no one actually there sharing a personal story. And I was thankfully the first, and, and now I won't be the last to have done that. So it went from this one post on, on one tweet, and then you said from there you were getting calls all over. So tell me one or two of those experiences, what it was like, where you, where you spoke... Um, how the impression that your gra that your great grandmother made, what it was like for you. You were how old at the time? Uh, Seventeen, sixteen. Wow. So what was it like? It was incredibly exciting. I think every sixteen-year-old dreams of going on national TV and radio and being able to to talk. But of course, it was also nervous. And for the first time, 
I felt that responsibility that this is one day going to become my, not my story, but my responsibility and my history to share. It's the Jewish people's history. The late chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, often said that there's no word for history in, in, in the Jewish language. There's only a word for memory, zachor. And there's a word, of course, in modern Hebrew, historia for history, but it's a word taken from English. And he says that the reason for this is because history is his story, a story which happened to someone else, sometime else, someplace else, in, in maybe another century, or someone you didn't know. Whereas memory is something which happened to the Jewish people, or not even the Jewish people, to society, where it's up to us to internalize these messages, to internalize the story and share it with the world. Because if we don't, we risk that same thing happening again, but we also risk it being forgotten forever. It's no longer his story. Memory is a collective memory for society that we can learn from. That's what Chief Rabbi, or previous Chief Rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, said about the difference between history and memory and for the first time I felt that I felt that I need to take this from my great-grandmother's history something which happened to her sometime else someplace else somewhere else some and to someone else to her and I need to take it to a collective story to to, to internalize that and realize that it's also my responsibility and I remember the first news interview we did I got a call um, from someone on Twitter someone said can I have your number on DMs um, one of the biggest reporters in the United Kingdom and he called me and he said, we'd like to come over tonight to put you on Sky News tonight. Um, and they came. I wasn't really prepared. No time to think. You say yes, because it's incredibly exciting. And me and my great-grandmother sat down and we decided kind of the things that we want to get across and the messages. And I don't remember exactly what they were. But I remember being empowered by my great-grandmother because she's so positive. She has a smile on her face every single day. And she shows people that you can move on, but also that we need to reflect and that we need to learn. And for the first time, I felt that too. And, and I went on the news, and thankfully, it was a great success, and many other news channels invited us on too. But that was when I realized that I had a platform and that you can create change, no matter how young you are. So many people often in school would tell me, you're a young person, you can't make any change, just focus on school. I was and, say, did you doubt yourself? And I did initially, but I think very quickly you realized that young people can have a seat at the table, young people can make change, and young people can, especially more than old people, I think, cr- cr- cut through the new noise and actually create meaningful and impactful change in an innovative and new way that hasn't been done before. So I quickly continued posting on Twitter about my great-grandmother's story. We were having hundreds or tens of millions at the time views every single month, sharing about her story, consistently going back on news channels, writing articles, interacting with different museums and Holocaust historians. And one day I get a DM from a book agent, a literary agent, who says to me, I think we can make this into a book, this story, great-grandmother, great-grandson bonds, the first time that a Holocaust survivor has been on social media sharing her story. And I laughed. Me and my dad, we sat there and we couldn't believe it. And my dad said to me, you can do it, but don't waste too much of your time, focus on school, make sure that you're you're focused on the end goal because nothing will probably come of it. And, And I kind of said to him, no, I'm determined to make this happen and it will happen. And we were in lockdown. Most people spent their days playing video games every day. And I sat down interviewing my great-grandmother for eight hours every single day for a few weeks with a historian and learning every single detail about my great-grandmother's story and transferring it from that history into memory to ensure that we could write it down in a book. Wow. So what, what's the process like of, of sitting down with a historian, trying to come up with a book? What, what's that like for people that haven't gone through that before? So we were very lucky very early on to have one of the biggest publishers in the world, Pam Macmillan, take on the story without even a book being written because they believed in the story, they believed in the mission, and they believed in mine and my great-grandmother's ability to share this story with the world. And thankfully, that materialized, and, and we did. We were able to share this story with the world. The book, our book, Lily's Promise, 
It's now an international awards-winning bestseller, New York Times bestseller, Sunday Times bestseller. Um, Let's back up for a second. What was your grand? What was your great grandmother's perspective when the when this book idea came up? I think my great grandmother was very reassured that finally her story will be written down in a concrete book, which no one will ever be able to take away. And I actually remember something quite poignant, which was our book came out in May of last year, and that was exactly eighty years since there was one of the largest Nazi book burning ceremonies. The day our book came out was exactly 80 years after the largest Nazi book burning ceremony in the world or or at the time. And I think my great-grandmother was incredibly reassured that her story will remain forever and that her story will now be written down, that people across the world in in various languages can read. And it's not like social media where only young people or or middle-aged people probably have social media where they can hear her story or it's not like schools where it's limited to whoever's in the school for the first time, millions of people across the world would be able to read and learn from her story. Oh, yeah. So how, how, did, how did you go about writing the book with your great-grandmother? What was the process? What was the experience like sitting with your great-grandmother for eight hours a day? That's unbelievable. It was incredibly special. Again, that bond that we had grown greater during the lockdown became even greater because you're now talking even more about topics which you have in, to be incredibly sensitive about. So we took a lot of breaks, making sure that my great-grandmother was comfortable with every single question. And those that she wouldn't, we didn't answer. And unfortunately, they're not included in the book. But I think you have to be wary that the subject you're talking about is incredibly sensitive. It's not a story which happened to someone else, sometime else. It's her story, stuff that she went through, stuff that she saw. And bringing up these memories can be very hard. So to sit there and see my great-grandmother really thinking and, and, and really transforming herself back to those days when she was in Auschwitz-Birkenau in the hell, as she describes it, I think that was incredibly hard and we'll never be able to understand what it was like for these people in that time. We can, of course, do our best to try and understand, but we will never be able to understand it. But it really brought me so close to her, closer than I never imagined I would be. And our bond now is, I guess, unbreakable, if you want to say it. But I also realised through these interviews that Jewish life before the war was very similar to the life that I lived at the time and that I live now. My great-grandmother grew up in a very similar environment to the environment that I live in. In, in Hungary, she grew up in a in a loving family, very outdoor life, mixed with Jews and non-Jews in her town. And everyone got on very, very well. And I think that was very similar to the life that I lived in London. And I thought to myself, with with one click of a finger, everything can change, like it happened to her. Overnight to my great-grandmother, she didn't really know what the Holocaust was. She, The Nazis invaded Hungary in 1944, one of the last countries to be invaded. And she had no idea. And you think to yourself, wow, just think of me and my nice home in, in, in London and imagine one day to the next being taken to a ghetto and then to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And and it's really impossible to understand. But I think you you gain a, a really a new perspective on life when you hear these stories, especially from a family member. Sitting with my great-grandmother, as we say, for eight hours a day and, and hearing these stories, not only of the Holocaust and the tragedy and, and the loss, but also rebuilding a life with no money, no family, in a different country with a different language and, and still maintaining your Jewish faith and your Manai and Hashem and saying that, that, that actually everything happens for a reason and, and that you still believe in God. I think when you hear that from your great-grandmother who went through probably the worst human tragedy ever, I think is incredibly powerful and incredibly moving. And so we sat down with a historian and we, we recorded my great-grandmother and we then transcribed these interviews and we then took them to various Holocaust museums, Yad Vashem, the Auschwitz Memorial Museum, and also various other Holocaust historians. And we then began writing the story into a concrete and, and story that made sense, not a story that was all over the place. 
And that was also incredibly hard to format the book and decide how we were going to do that. So the format of the book is I first speak about how the book came about, social media, and I then introduce my great-grandmother. And she then has a few chapters in her own voice all the way up until liberation, where I then come back in and explain the story of the banknote that we just spoke about. Um, and I also speak about contemporary anti-Semitism and why, why it's important that we read these books and learn about the Holocaust even in the 2020s and hopefully further on too. And it then goes back into my great-grandmother's story, rebuilding, rebuilding, uh, and rebuilding not only her life, but a Jewish life. And, and I think the whole Jewish people rebuilding from what was lost. Two-thirds of European Jewry were lost in the Holocaust. And so we, she then speaks about rebuilding Jewishness and, and Jewish identity and her own family um, and her life and going back to build a new life in Israel and then in London. And then it comes back to me at the end where we end off, I think it was her 98th birthday or 97th birthday, um, and that's where the book finishes and it's a whole circle of life I think you start at her birth and you finish at one of her birthdays um, and I think it's really a very unique book because firstly it's the only book like that of its kind written by great-grandmother and great-grandson where you have both of our voices incorporated but it's also a full circle most holocaust books end at liberation our book shows you the effect of the holocaust on my great-grandmother her children her grandchildren her great-grandchildren but it also showed you how someone who is 21 years old at liberation who had just experienced four months in the hell of Auschwitz-Birkenau, five months in slave labor, and then five days on the death march, and also all of the other ramifications of the Holocaust, rebuilt her life, and, and with a smile on her face. Um, and I think there's so much that you can learn from my great-grandmother. I can sit here every single day, every single day, um, explaining things that you can learn, not only from my great-grandmother, but from all of the survivors. So it was incredibly hard cutting down, what do you put in the book, what don't you? But it was an incredible process, and one which I learned so much from. Um, and I think the experiences that I learned from writing the book with my great-grandmother I'll carry with me forever into the future. I think we're also incredibly lucky that we wrote this book during the corona pandemic. People were looking for nice stories. Of course, the story of the Holocaust is not a nice or good story. But I think the story of a great-grandmother and great-grandson sitting down to do something productive and really special during lockdown, people were really looking for stories like that. And when we put the book out, we also had, thank God, a... Uh, a forward from His Majesty the King, King Charles III, who was at the time the Prince of Wales. Um, we also had quotes from various museums and, and various celebrities across the world helping us to promote this book. And very quickly it became an international success and a massive hit across the world. And I was very surprised. I never thought that we would kind of get such a good response. I, was, I would be happy if only one person read the book. But thankfully, hundreds of thousands of people have. And it's it's really quite, really, really special. Wow, so quickly, hundreds of thousands of people read the book? Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, it took a few months, obviously, and it's now nearly in 20 languages. But it's thankfully, it's really taken off across the world, and people do want to learn and listen. And people thought that as time goes on, people will be less interested. But I think, whilst, of course, many people are less interested, and we've seen Holocaust denial rising across the world, there are also a young generation who really are interested and they don't know that much because, unfortunately, the education system has failed in this respect. But I think people are educating, and especially on social media. Young people have an incredibly short social media span now. But I think if you reach them in the right ways, you can engage them. So, yeah, so it's amazing. But so what was the next steps beyond the book? You seem like the type of person that once an idea comes up and that you have the ability to impact people and make a difference, that you're foot on the pedal. So what have you been up to then since? it's a constant challenge in life to constantly innovate and see what's next I think that was my main problem if I would have just left that one viral tweet the first tweet about the banknote at one viral tweet 
I would have probably said to myself at the time, I've done enough. That would be enough. Eight million people learned about my great-grandmother's story and learned about the Holocaust. And we went on a hundred of the biggest news outlets in the world. That's amazing. We probably reached hundreds of millions of people. And I would have probably said to myself, that would have been enough. But I look back now and I realize that would not have been enough. Because we now have a TikTok channel with two million followers where over one billion people on TikTok have viewed my great-grandmother's story, our book. And we've worked with governments and international organizations like the United Nations, the European Union, to create impactful change in, in curriculums, in governments, and in their policies. And I think when I look back now and realized what a 16-year-old achieved at 16, 17, 18, also now 19, I think no one would have believed me, or I wouldn't even believe myself, that I can do these things, that I can organize a meeting with the Prime Minister of England to discuss with him what needs to change in the Holocaust educational curriculum. But you can, and I think every single time that someone asks me what's the message that you want to convey to other 16-year-olds now or other young people, is that you really can make a difference. And, and I made a difference with one click of a button, with one button which said tweet. And I think every single person has a platform. You have a social media account and you can use it for good or bad, or you can just use it to, to just speak to your friends. But I think if you do that, you can't say that you've done enough. If you have a platform, no matter it's 100 followers, 1,000 followers, a million followers, if only one person learns, that's enough because it's exponential. One person goes and tells another person who goes and tells another person and you don't necessarily need to be educating about the Holocaust. Just using your platform for positivity and for good, I think, is so important because there's so much negativity on social media. There's so much abuse. There's so much racism. And it's not just on social media. It's off of it, too. I think in the world at the moment, we're seeing so much negativity, so much pessimism. But if we use our platforms for good, to share optimism, to, to share our values and, and, and to share our stories, I think you will see that people do want to listen and you can have a change. I think the biggest fear is that you won't be heard and that no one cares, but I think it's not true. Every single family, every single person has a story that says locked up, and so you take that treasure chest, you unlock it, and you, you use that story to perpetuate not only your story and, and, and the Jewish story, and you don't even have to be Jewish to be doing this. You can be, Every single person has a story, and a story that can create meaningful change in the world. You just have to realize how to do that. And so for me, the next step after the book was to create a TikTok account, which now, as I said, has 2 million followers, at Lilia Betts and Dolph Foreman, and every single day, I allow young people to comment a question, and we pick one or two questions every single day that we answer. And we've been doing that. For you and your great-grandmother together. Yes. Well, at the moment, I'm in Israel. My great-grandmother's in London. So often, it's just me or just my great-grandmother or when we can together. But that, again, was incredibly innovative. I can't believe that no one had thought of that before, to go to the young people and allow them to ask questions and have those answers. People are looking for the eyewitnesses to ask questions to, and unfortunately, as we move further on from the horrors of the Holocaust and the numbers of survivors dwindles, that will be more and more difficult to find those survivors to ask your questions. And I couldn't believe that no one was on TikTok where the young people are, allowing young people to ask these questions and to learn about the Holocaust. And so I opened up an account and our first video got 450,000 views. And I realized wow. again, people do want to learn. People do want to listen. And we get of course, racist abuse. That was going to be my question. Is, is that, Has there been also negative feedback and how do you balance the negative versus the positive? Yeah, so of course we get racist abuse and of course we face anti-Semitic people and, and disgusting racist individuals. But thankfully, firstly, we've got an incredible support network around us and people who do want to help TikTok have been very supportive. Um, of course, this is not the story of every single creator and Jewish creator on the app. For myself and my great-grandmother, TikTok have been incredibly supportive and look, I try not to put too much focus on the deniers and the anti-Semites because they're never going to go away. They've been around for thousands of years and, and they'll still be here in, in hundreds and thousands of years to come because 
people always resent the fact and the anti-Semites and the racists will always resent the fact that a young 18-year-old or 19-year-old Jewish person and their great-grandmother who's a Holocaust survivor have a platform to create meaningful change. They will always resent that fact. And there's nothing we can do about it. But we can educate and we can allow young people not to not to see that denial on anti-Semitic videos and, and, and content before they see actual educational content. So I think my main aim on TikTok is for young people to see us before they see them, before they see the dangerous stuff, before they see the deniers. Because... The danger we have now, I think, is reaching the young people. And the only way to do that is on social media because they don't have the attention span long enough to listen to a three-hour talk of a Holocaust survivor in schools like they used to. And even when they used to, it's very difficult. I remember sitting in that classroom listening to my great-grandmother. I think even because it was my great-grandmother, it would have been easier. But it was incredibly hard to engage and to understand and to realise really what she was talking about. And so we now have to condense that into minute videos into 30 seconds which is incredibly tough but our aim is not to educate in 30 seconds it's to allow those young people to be drawn into us before they're drawn in to the hateful racist anti-semitic and holocaust denial content are there ways that you try to promote um in order to expand the reach to more young people what do you do i think i i'm incredibly lucky that i'm young and that i'm still not in university i've got a year now to kind of explore different options so i have an opportunity to take as many of the opportunities that i'm offered as possible any meeting that i can get with um, a high-ranking government official or celebrity to encourage them to use their platform for good and to, to create change i think that's one way which we draw people in and and we don't how? only use my own platform but also other people's platforms to amazing so how, how do you have any examples like who have you met that's helping um to build as you mentioned before that you're helping change curriculums maybe elaborate a lot a few a few of those stories to tell people about uh again just to hear from you a, a young person that's doing so much so just to hear what a person can accomplish is very inspiring so what are a few things that you've done a few weeks ago i was sitting in uh, in class in yeshiva and i get a phone call and i have a policy when i'm in a lecture or something which is if someone calls me three times, I'll answer. But if if it's not urgent, then I won't. So I, I decline the call. They call again. I decline the call. They call the third time. So I go out of the classroom for a few seconds to answer. And I answer the phone and they say, hello, Dov, this is, I won't say the name. I'm the advisor to the president of Israel. The president of Israel would like to speak to you. <laughs> so I say, okay. And they put the president on the phone and he says, hello, Dov, I'd like to invite you to a meeting in my house in a few weeks time to discuss Holocaust education, what you can do with the Israeli government on this, and also what help you might need from me, any advice. And we sat down in his house and he called my great-grandmother firstly on FaceTime to wish her a happy birthday. My great-grandmother just wow. turned 99. That was incredibly special. My great-grandmother my great-grandmother said to him, I was 20 years old in Auschwitz and I never thought I would have another birthday. And not only did I never think I'd have another birthday, I never thought I'd survive to see a Jewish state with a Jewish president. <laughs> And now to be talking to you, I think it was just, I think he almost had tears. She almost had tears. It was just, wow. it was really, really special to see her who in Auschwitz really didn't believe that she would have another birthday or that she would survive or that there would ever be a Jewish state. To see that happening, I think that was that was incredibly special. <laughs> and I think that's one example of like how a regular, at the time I was 18, I'm now 19, I just turned 19, but how a regular 18-year-olds can be receiving calls from the prime minister and the president and even when people ask me how did you get the forward from the king how did you, the king write an introduction to your book it's almost unheard of he's not written many before especially a holocaust book written by a 16 year old at the time why would why would he be interested what was the what was drawing him to the story 
and people often ask me if I had an in with them or if I knew someone who knew him and that's not the case I sent an email like anyone else can and a few months later I received a reply and we took it from there and I think it really shows you that that anyone can create change you can reach these people it seems impossible but you really can you just have to to go and go and take the action don't be a talker be a doer go and go and act on your on, on your words and I thought, so I said to my dad, I'm going to try and get the king. And again, he laughed, not in a rude way, but because who, who would even think of such a thing? But I think you have to have high aspirations, but you actually have to believe that you can carry out these aspirations. And, and I think when, when you start to carry out these things, of course, not everyone replies. And of course, you're not always going to reach success. But you realize that an overwhelming people, amount of people do want to help. And there's a story about a celebrity, Montana Tucker, who's Jewish herself. She has 8 million followers on TikTok, 2 million followers on Instagram. She, ne- no one ever thought, probably no one ever even knew that she was Jewish, but no one ever thought that she would use her account to share stories to millions of people about the Holocaust. And she saw the work that myself and my great grandmother were doing. And she realized that, wait, I have a platform with 8 million followers on TikTok, 2 million followers on Instagram. I should go to Auschwitz and film myself there. My first ever time there, really connecting to her grandmother's story, who was also a survivor from Hungary, also called Lily. <laughs> and she went, and I think hundreds of millions of people saw her episodes on tiktok and instagram and also on the news about about the holocaust and i think it shows you that just by being there being a presence you can also impact other people who have incredible reach and we now work together on a few things there are countless other celebrities there's one story which i'll also go to of a cricket player zim rafiq in the united kingdom and he was testifying in the the parliament in england about anti-muslim prejudice that he received at his cricket club yorkshire cricket club in england and whilst he was testifying about this, people were searching through his social media and found that 11 years ago, he was anti-Semitic on social media. And of course, people were outraged. Someone who's going to the parliament to talk about anti-Muslim prejudice that he receives is racist himself. And people really tried to cancel him. Now, I thought to myself, this is not a man who was doing this out of... He's not going there and, and, and being hypocritical. I thought to myself, this is a man who really knows nothing about Judaism. What do we gain from just cancelling him and, and putting him kind of in the sidelines and not ever learning about Jews. And Jewish people, the newspapers were going mad against him, saying he's trying to, to speak about racism that he receives and he's racist himself. And I thought to myself, why don't we just invite him to a meeting with a Holocaust survivor to in a shawl and teach him about Judaism? And if he doesn't learn, then fine. But if he does, then we can learn that really he didn't know and, and he made a mistake, which he apologised for and people still didn't accept. And so I invited him to meet with myself, my great-grandmother, in our shawl, and he came and he heard my great grandmother's story and then got a tour of the shawl. And at the end, he said to us, you know, I didn't even know what Auschwitz was. I'd never met a Jewish person. You're one of the first Jews that I've met. And I think it teaches you a lot that, again, we can be so quick to judge a knife and, 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 and kind of to put someone to the side and say, look, they made a mistake and he made a mistake. And it's a terrible mistake to make. But I think what it teaches us is that, especially when you have, at the time we had... Like, tens of thousands of followers i think we had a huge opportunity that we could show people that actually through education we can achieve things and he now supports the jewish people he went on march of the living he's constantly on social media supporting the jewish people and i think there's an incredible lesson to learn from that from meaning from your invitation now the now the impact that he's making it's not even from my invitation but just that you can influence others who only years prior had radically different views and, and i think it shows that some people just really don't know. And people often look at our TikTok account and scroll through the comments and there are children commenting, why did you choose Auschwitz? 
Now, people often say to me, these people are being so rude, delete the comments. It's they're, they're, they're being ignorant or naive. I don't think they are. I think they're just uneducated. They don't know. They're not being taught. So I think 50% of Gen Zers in, in America don't know what the Holocaust is. And, and why should I not deny, why should I deny them the opportunity to learn and to hear my great-grandmother's story? So we answer those questions because it's not them being anti-Semitic or racist. It's them being, it's them being curious. They really want to learn and they do and they now understand. What are, what are the next steps? I mean, it's hard to even perceive. So much has already been done. But what are, I know, I, now that I'm getting to know you better and part of our program, I know what, what, are, what are the next steps? As well as how are you balancing being just in the yeshiva and gap year at the same time? I think there's a multitude of things which, which I aim to do next. In terms of the book, of course, the next step would be to get a film or a series, which we're working on. We, we'll see what happens. Um, these things are very difficult and and. and take years but we hope and, and i think if that does happen again hundreds of more millions of people will be able to learn because of this one project in terms of my own next steps i hope to go to university next year a secular college university college london not a jewish university and there again i hope to impact and influence people non-jewish people who might never have met a jewish person or ever heard about the holocaust or anti-semitism anti-jewish racism but i also hope to engage other jewish people more engaged Jewish people or less engaged it doesn't matter I think to show them that every single person that they meet they might be the first and last ever Jew that they meet and that they can have incredible incredible impressions and an impact on every single person non-Jewish person that they meet but also that this story of the Holocaust is not just my great grandmother's story and then therefore my story that I need to share it's the responsibility of every single Jewish person and also non-Jewish person but specifically Jewish person to share these stories and to internalize these stories to make it your memory and, and to realize that if we forget history, we're doomed to repeat it. And it's up to us. It really is up to us, the next generation, the younger generation. The Holocaust survivors for years have been doing their best to share these stories. And unfortunately, many are passing away and many are in their late 80s and 90s. And soon they won't be here. They won't be able to share their stories. And the least we could do is to pass on their story to one more person. So, so just remember their story, even if it's just you who, who learns their story and passes it to your children, your grandchildren, your friend. I think that's the least we could do. You mentioned before that you're trying to help out with different uh, curriculum and education. Now, uh, how, how are you going about doing that? So I was very grateful to be op offered an opportunity by the British government when it came to Holocaust Memorial Day, I think a year, two years ago now. We're approaching Holocaust Memorial Day again. And they said to me, we want you to work on a project with the Department of Edu Education to promote Holocaust education for school students, primary school students online. And we made a video which was shared to, I think, 175,000 school students. Um, and again, it's I've continued to work with them on, on, on creating more engaging and informative Holocaust education. Of course, you need the textbooks and you need the books and you need teachers to talk about the Holocaust and, and, and World War II in general. But you also need that informative side, which I don't think there was before, because you need to gain that initial interest. No one's going to sit in a class for two hours and listen and read from a textbook if they don't even have that initial interest. And I myself did history until the last year of school. I picked it to continue it all the way. And even myself, I found it hard to read a textbook and understand what it means, the number six million. I think this is going to sound weird, me quoting Stalin, but even Stalin says it. He says, one death is a, tra is a tragedy. A million deaths is, is a statistic. How can you understand six million? But you can understand it when you realize that my great-grandmother is one and there were six million people like her who did not survive. There were 36 great-grandchildren of, of every single, sorry, of every single person who perished, who wasn't able to live. 
And I think when you realise that, how many more people that could be around, but the potential that every single person had, these people were crimeless. They were killed for no reason. And I think when you realise that, and when you show a young person in school that, then maybe they will want to listen when they're presenting it in school. So that's what I've worked on with the British government, and, and it's succeeded, I think. Um, and I've also got a meeting shortly with the Canadian government to discuss their education and various other people too. I've worked with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Israel to create a project called My Story is Your Story, which is now rolled out and we're about to start our second year, which encourages other young people to go to Holocaust survivors in Israel who have never shared their story, but who are now ready in their late 80s and 90s and realise that these are the last moments. And young children go to them and hear their story, just listen. And eventually they gain a better, better relationship and they ask the survivors, can we video your story? And they then upload it on social media or they write blogs about it or even a book. We encourage everyone to, to use their own niche and whatever they're good at to share these stories. And even if they don't share it online and they don't write a book and they don't write a blog, the whole point is that my story is your story. One person learns and this one person can pass it on to another person. And that's what we worked on with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If anyone's interested, you can search up um, my story is your story, Ministry of Foreign Affairs Israel. You can get involved. You don't need to live in Israel. You can do it on Zoom as well. Um, and there's also various other projects I'm working on which hopefully will, will come soon I'm going to Auschwitz in January to work with the Auschwitz M Museum and Memorial to create content for TikTok but also to be part of a restoration process that's going on it's constantly different things evolving and constantly different people that I'm trying to work with to to make sure that the Holocaust is, is stays in the mainstream and that people learn no matter if they're Jewish, not Jewish no matter what community they're from I think there's also an important lesson which we Jewish people need to learn as well, which is that when we want people to stand up for us, we also have to stand up for other people. And I think on social media, this is something which I try to preach the whole time. Yes, we constantly call for others to support us, but I think we also need to stand up for anyone else who's receiving racism, no matter what community they're from, who they are, where they live, how old they are. Every single form of racism and prejudice is, is disgusting and, and, and we need to be vigilant and we need to call it out wherever we see it in society because the Holocaust did not start with the final solution. It didn't start with the gas chambers. It didn't start with Auschwitz-Birkenau. It started with tropes and it started with racism, basic racism. And I think we have to realise that those signs can repeat themselves. Something like Auschwitz-Birkenau will never happen again, we hope. But the signs and, and, and the rise in anti-Semitism, the rise in racism, that can happen again. That is happening now. No one would believe that on the streets of London you would hear someone when a young schoolboy when I was five years old or seven years old no one would believe that I would have been screamed at saying you dirty Jew or no one would believe that cars would be rallying down the streets saying we want to kill all of the Jews in London. People think those type of things happened only in Nazi Germany in 1930s. It happens right now today, not only in London, in America too and across the world. France, in France, the Jews have been driven out. Europe, most of the Jews have been driven out because of anti-Semitism. And I think we have to be vigilant and we have to realise that it's up to us to stand up and wherever we see hatred in society to call it out. Unbelievable! No, your 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 drive to stand up is um, really similar to what we we do together. And this program needs to have in, which means stand up, is uh, realizing that young people they have the ability to make a difference in ways that no one no one else can. And what what has been your experience, and what do you think is so important about this uh, needs to have in program? I think needs to have in pushes like minded individuals to to work together to create a mission and, and, and a purpose and, and a project for the common good. I think so so often in life, we're caught up in the education system, we focus on ourselves. 
every people only get busier in life people like to tell me um, and it's true and there's so much to focus on yourself your own life to build your own family to focus on whether you're young and you only have parents and siblings to focus on those relationships but what we have to realize is that life is bigger than ourselves it's greater than us and there's 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 so much we have to achieve together and that we can achieve and i think on its of him we learn to work together to create a project to inspire others and, and and to engage with others in in the outside world especially in secular colleges because most of the people on project on the on the um program are going to secular college to realize that it's up to us again as i said we might be the only jew that they ever meet the last jew that someone ever meets but also with jews themselves to engage with other jews secular jews religious jews doesn't matter to to work with each other to realize that we have more in common than that which divides us people often think that there's so much with with everyone but also in the jewish community there's so much division there's no need for it of course we're all different we all have we all have our own traditions and our own and communities but i think when there's so few of us why not work together and i think that's what it's of him shows you to do to work together and to engage others and to bring others in and to work together to, to do that you're, you're making such tremendous impact on your on your own already why did you feel the need why did you want to uh, to join it's of him i think in life in general you can't think that you're good enough to to create impacts on an international scale by yourself. I think firstly, I haven't been doing it alone. My great grandmother is 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 so is is what I do. I think there would be nothing without my great grandmother. Of course, her story wouldn't have been shared with billions of people without her. But to have her by my side every single day sharing this story is something which is so special. And I realized that you always need someone else there too. But I also think that, that together we are greater. Together we can achieve more. Together we can have new ideas. It's always good to have someone checking what you're doing and, and criticizing it constructively. And there's there's so much which we can achieve, even more than you can achieve when you're by yourself together. And and I think through Nitz I've seen that. That different projects, we peer review each other and, and we help each other and we push each other to, to grow more and, and to be greater. Um, and, and I think that so often people want to achieve stuff by themselves because they want the name and they want the, the kudos to themselves. But I don't think that it makes a difference if there's one person, two people, three people. It's about the impact you make. Not not. People often say to me, how come you had, if we want to call it success in, 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 in quote marks, how come you had so much success? And I think it was never about the success. It was about sharing the story. The success came with it. And, and thank God so many people have learned and we have two million followers that we can share with every day. But as I said, if only one person learned, if only we had one follower who was learning every single day, that would be enough. It's the, the followers and the numbers are great, but it's not. that's not the main reason why we do it. Dov, you're a tremendous, tremendous inspiration to other young people. Um, people can really, really, really learn from your story of just starting small and who knows where it'll go as long as you do what you're supposed to do and share what is important can make a tremendous impact. Um, so you should continue impacting celebrities like Montana Tucker and other athletes, as well as regular everyday people like yourself and bring tremendous um, merit to your grandmother, your family, and all, all other Holocaust survivors as well. So continue all your amazing work there. Thank you. I think, as we said, there's one lesson which everyone can learn, which is that you can create an impact. You can make a difference, no matter who you are, what community you're from, how old you are. You can have a seat at the table. You can cut through that noise and you can, you can, you can create meaningful and impactful change. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please help us reach more people 
by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For more content like this, visit our website at thrivestudyabroad.org.